So look, I don't know what comes to your mind. I've just been thinking about church this week because we've been talking about family and here we finally get to the part of family where we break away from your family of origin and we get into church family. So I've been thinking about church family and and I don't know what comes to your mind or what emotion or what feeling comes to your mind when we hear the word church and when you hear somebody say, I go to church or I'm a part of the church. But I would imagine, I would almost guarantee that it's nothing at all like what the church looked like in the first century. And I would almost guarantee that when you say church, whatever you're thinking of is not like this at all. Because the church didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin with liturgy and and lots of different elements, kneeling and standing and all that stuff in the service. They definitely didn't have a building that looked like this. They didn't have a gym. They didn't have you know, Wednesday night prayer meeting. They didn't even have a Bible, right? This thing wasn't, didn't look like this just yet when the church first started. They didn't have banners on top of the building. They didn't have buildings, you know, all the other Bs, budgets, buildings, bodies, all that stuff. None of that stuff was in play when the church first started. And so when you say church family and you start with church, I think it just conjures up a whole bunch of images that are pretty far. So my question, you know, as I'm sort of walking through this this week, is how did we get from there to here? How did we get from what church looked like in in those first few chapters in Acts to what we do today? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a little brief history of of sort of where I think that that we got from, how we got from there to here. And I know I say history, and you're like, all right, I'm going to start my nap. But hit the backward snooze button and stay awake for five more minutes instead of, you know, falling asleep for five more minutes. Here's where I think we, uh, we sort of got off. Okay, so if you grew up, because here's why. If you grew up Catholic and, and you just got disenfranchised with some of that and some of it began to feel not real to you or, or it just put you off, or like me, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church and, and man, there was so much good stuff there. Um, but there was also a lot of stuff that just made me feel like we're pretty far from, it feels like we're pretty far from doing what we want to do or what we need to do. And it seemed like my church was building a new building every, you know, eight years. You know, all of a sudden we needed a new building on campus. And we weren't really growing, but we had plenty of money, so why not build a building? And, uh, and man, it just, it just began to feel like, and maybe it's what God used to push me here, but it just began to feel like, man, we are really missing the mark. And I think when you look back, you begin to see why we started missing the mark. So we're going to get into the text today. It's in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 2, you're introduced to this word. It's a Greek word, and, and you may have heard it kind of tossed around before, but the Greek word is koinonia. And here's what koinonia means. It's the first time that they describe the church coming together. The first time that they talk about when the church came together, they use the word koinonia, and koinonia means gathering. Koinonia actually means really, really close gathering. I'm just I'm going to I'm going to tell you the the honest truth about what it what it means. Koinonia was a word that meant really close gathering and in certain contexts koinonia was used to describe intercourse. So when we're talking about, you know, I don't want to dig into that. You can your imagination can go. It means really really close, okay? So so when we're to, when he's describing the church, he's describing a really really close gathering. People that are really close to one another, right? Spiritually, he's talking about in this sense. And so I, I just think that's pretty interesting the way that he first begins to describe the church. And, and so as, as church went on, 
they begin to use this word ecclesia. And so the first description was koinonia, and then they use this word ecclesia. So if you see the word church in your Bible, it's probably, the original Greek word was probably ecclesia. And it was a, a pretty similar meaning, close gathering, um, a body, or a body like moving forward together. And so when, when, the early, when the writers talked about church, they didn't mention anything other than this gathering of people. But this is what's pretty interesting. Our English word for church doesn't come from that word at all. It comes from a German word. I don't know how to say this at all. I'm sure you have to spit when you say it or something because that's how German words are. But it's like Kirche. So the German word is Kirche. And what that word meant was like building. So it meant building or church or place where, or, or like religious building. So it could have been a, a mosque, it could have been anything, right? But didn't necessarily mean a gathering of the church. And it was centered around the word building. And so our word church comes from this Greek word that meant like religious building. And so you begin to see this shift over like 300 years from Jesus to 300 years later where we're not thinking of the church as a gathering. All of a sudden we're starting to think of it as a building. And we're starting to think of it as as a place to meet, not the actual meeting that's taking place. And then what? where we got to in 300 years, much like, I don't know, my love of 90s country music. You know, like I got to the 90s, I never moved on from there. And uh, my mother-in-law, if you get in her car, it's always 70s music, always. It's like she got to the 70s in music, never came any further. Well, the church, at about year 300, got to the idea that church was building, and then we just kind of got stuck there for a long, long time. And here's one of the reasons we got stuck there for such a long time, is because these people you know, around year 300, they didn't have, and then all the way for a long, long time, they had no idea that they had it wrong because the Bible wasn't in their language. Like, they couldn't read it at all. So somebody had to read it to them. There was no way that they had any idea what it was saying. So all the way up until about year 1500, um, here they were. They had a Bible in front of them that they couldn't read. None of it was in English. It was all in a language that they didn't understand. And so this guy comes along. His name's William Tyndale. I put a picture of him. Didn't I put a picture of him? Pretty sure. Yeah, there we go, right? Smile, William. <laughs> yeah. They never smiled in those pictures. Um, so uh, William comes along. He's a linguist, and he decides, you know what? I think people should be able to read the Bible. You know, it just feels, feels foolish that, that a few, only a few people can read it and, and none of the rest of us can when we can clearly translate it. There are people like me everywhere that can do it. And so William begins to translate the Bible, right? First person to begin to translate it into English. And as he begins to translate it, a lot of people have problems with it. And so just for translating the Bible, here's what happens. He's named a criminal. He has to flee. Uh, flee. He goes to Germany. He hides out in Germany while he's continuing to translate. He finishes the translation, but then his friend gives him up for some sum of money. So a good friend of his that knows where he is gives up his location. They come and get him. They try him as a heretic uh, just for translating the Bible, and they hang him. Right? And they hang him, and they declare him an enemy of the church forever. Because he just thought you should be able to read the Bible. And here was their biggest problem with him. He would have not gotten hanged had he not done this. Even for this terrible offense of translating the Bible, he would have not gotten hanged had it not been for this. This is what he 
Let's see what caused such a stir. He translated the word um, ecclesia. Uh, he, instead of translating that as the word church, from this sort of uh, German word, instead of translating it that way, he translated it as gathering. And it made them furious that he would translate it gathering instead of church. Because they had built an empire, an entire empire, based around the idea that church is this building. And we need you to give money to the building. And the building is the place, right? The whole basilica, you know. We need you to give money so we can upkeep this thing that we've built. And, and we've got this whole empire. And so if he doesn't translate it as church, then the empire begins to crumble. If people begin to see that the church is a heck of a lot more than a building. And that was their big problem with him because he just had this idea that church was supposed to be something other than the building. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is what I think is so cool. We get to zoom in, we get to cut through all that mess, and we get to zoom in right on the first gathering of the church. And I think it's pretty incredible just to get to see what church looked like at its rawest form. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, here we go. It says, this is the first meeting of the church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you catch that? They had service at 9 a.m., Sunday school at 8 8 o'clock. And then after that, they went about and they did their own thing for the rest of the week. They hired some professional janitors to clean. And then they came back on Wednesdays, and then they had a Wednesday night service. And, uh, And the kids got to play in the gym while the adults had Bible study and prayer meeting. No, like, it doesn't look like any of that. And, and not that stuff is bad, but it, it misses what they're actually doing when they gather. And if you're like me, I start to think, well, this series is about family, and this doesn't really look like family. Look what it says. Does this describe your family? It says, um, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Does that sound like mealtime at your house? Like mealtime at my house growing up was eat as fast as you can and run in every other direction. Somebody's got a ball game, you know, my stepdad can't wait to get to the couch. You know, we've all got somewhere to be, but it's not here at the table. And we're doing it as fast as possible. Mealtime at my house now looks like this. It's like a thousand times you eat three more big girl bites and you can have some gummies. You know, that's pretty much like the entire mealtime at my house. Proceeded, and, and, and a lot of don't ask me again, you know, is mixing there a lot. But it doesn't, but when you look at the way the church gathered and you see church family, man, it doesn't seem to mesh with what we call family or what we call church. But I think we can dig two things out of this passage right here. We can dig two things out of here where you can see what the early church did as church family and what, what they did here together, it changed their lives. And it actually changed the entire culture around them. And for these people that were involved in the early church, church family became everything to them. And you may think, man, if church became everything to me, like that seems a little fanatical. 
Like if we had to meet with the church every day, I, and we're not going to start doing that, right? But if we met every day, that may be a little much. Like I've got a pretty busy work schedule. I think that would scare people off. I don't think anybody would come. But you want to talk about busy work schedules, you know, uh, in this day, people worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. I mean, they were busy, right? They worked sun up to sundown, and, and, and I mean, it was a crazy busy life and schedule, um, but they met this way. Every day they gathered together. I mean, they, they gave up their own things for one another, and you think, man, that had to have been a small group. Who would be willing to do that? Actually... Right before verse 42, you see that in one day, 3,000 people decided to come join the church. Right? And one day, 3,000 people came in. If we grew by 200, we wouldn't have any idea what to do. Right? I'd have to quit my job. We'd get a bigger sanctuary. We'd build a building. Right? We'd have loads of problems. Man, um, in one day, 3,000 people came into the life of the church. It's estimated that around this time in Jerusalem, there were about... Um, there were somewhere around 200,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. And it's estimated that, that before the dispersion, before these people started getting persecuted and moved everywhere else in the world, that about half of Jerusalem, 100,000 people, had become Christians and were worshiping in the church. And so it's actually just the opposite. Man, they became really, really devoted to church, family, and faith, and everybody saw it and wanted to be a part of it. It actually says every single day a few more people joined them. Every single day, people were joining them and joining the church. And there are two things that were really true for them that, that I think are pretty pertinent here. The first one is this. Church family, that's what you see in the text. Church family is the place where we solve our problems. Church family is the place where we solve our problems. I think it's pretty clear in the text. Church family is a place where we solve our problems. You see the part of the passage where he said... Um, they were sacrificing their food and they were sacrificing their finances all to help each other. And that was what their life was all about. You know, to me, the saddest stories that I hear and the ones in, that I've been a part of with close friends of mine are ones where, you know, you have friends and they, you know, people you go to church with or, or somebody you know really well that goes to another church. And, and you know them really well, and they seem to be doing well, and, and you know, things seem to be going great. And the next thing you know, um, they're getting divorced, and it's irreparable. And you had no idea. You know, it's like you, you knew them well, and the next thing you know, it's, it's, you know that's not what's happening. And, and it doesn't make any sense, but, but really, it's been going on for a long time, but you had no idea. You know, he had, a, he had a cousin a few years ago who committed suicide, and his, you know, his man it seemed to be doing great. And you know, his dad's a his dad's a minister of music. His mom is, you know, my aunt. She's posting on Facebook all the time, Bible verses, you know, all that kind of stuff. And 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 they, they seem to be doing well. He seems to be doing a whole lot better. And next thing you know, that. And and man, you just look at it, and it, it's so sad to me because people are so good at faking it. And we do this thing where we'll come to church every week, week in and week out, and we act like everything's good. But, man, clearly everything is not good. And for every big problem that we've ever had or somebody close to you has had, it started a long time before it all came out. But instead of somebody, instead of church family gathering around and helping one another when things are challenging, we just keep those things to ourselves. And church family isn't a place where we come to get some help. And typically when we have big problems, we choose to go, we choose to go all those things alone. 
And the mentality is, uh, you know, I'll solve my problems on my own. And, and you solve, and the bigger part is, you solve your problems on your own. Because <laughs> I do not need your burden on top of mine. You know, I've got a pretty busy schedule, and if I start solving your problems, you know, and, you know I mean, I'm not going to have any time to solve my own. And you have this fear that if you open yourself up and you become known as somebody who's helpful, then, then you're going to get the person who, who doesn't help with problems, they only dump problems, and you're going to get that person in your life, and now they're not going to help you with yours, you're just going to be helping them with theirs, and, and man, your schedule's going to be so full, and, and like this is going to be just incredibly overbearing. And, and that's all the kind of stuff we fear when we open ourselves up to do what church was designed to do. And I admit, it's, it's, it's pretty challenging. And all that would work pretty well if only we didn't need each other so much. For me, and I mean like, like me personally, not hypothetically me. Um, for me, I could have used some times in the life of the church where I wish that I'd opened myself up and said, this is my struggle. And I really need some help with this. And when, when Molly was born for that first year, I wish I, I wish I had let someone who was older, who had children, come in and say, and just give me some advice, and I wish I would have listened to it. You know, I, the first year Molly was born, I've said this before, man, we went a, a thousand different directions, and we almost lost our minds. And I wish I had listened to somebody who was wise in the faith say, hey, why don't you not try to work 60 hours a week and, 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 and go to graduate school and, and try to start everything new and you know, start a church. And why don't you not do everything this year because your family is going to need to be discipled and your family is going to need to be cared for. And when it was just you and your wife, it was really easy. And, but now you add this new element and you're going to need to focus on that. And I could name 14 other problems like that one that I wish I had said I wish I'd opened myself up to the church and said, give me some help here. You know, I, I, could, I could have avoided a ton of headache. I could have stand to have taken a whole lot of marriage advice, you know, and, and, and avoided a whole heck of a lot of heartache. I, I wish that I'd opened up some of my self-identity problems, you know, and I'm pretty open about them now in, in just recent years. But, man, I, I wasted, man, the church has struggled um, I've gotten myself into loads of work professionally just because of a bit of a self-identity crisis. You, you know what I do sometimes? This is almost embarrassing, but, you know, I, if I make a decision, like a career decision, you know, you know what I picture? My dad used to, I, I think I said this last week, but my dad used to sit in this mower shop and all these old guys would sit in this mower shop in a town, population 100, and they sit in there and they talk about everybody's life decisions. And it's like I'm putting whatever decision I make on the table, and I'm like, would the mower shop guys be proud of this? <laughs> and I mean, who cares what they think? They're probably not alive anymore. Um, but, man, I'm wrapping some self-identity in, in, in what they're thinking. And I'm making some decisions based on people I don't even know. I was listening to, um, I was listening to LeBron James talk after they lost the last final. And, and here's a guy, he's won three NBA titles. People say, you know, top anywhere between top one and five basketball players of all time. And he's, uh, he's like won four MVPs, three titles. Um, he's the richest basketball player ever, like at this point in his career. You know? So it's you know, all different kind of factors in there. But he's made more money than anybody else that's ever played the game up to this point in their career. I mean, he's got everything going for him. And all he can talk about in this press conference is, and this is like 
this is like a week and a half after they lost the finals. All he can talk about is getting beat. And all he can talk about is trying to live up to somebody else. And how the only thing that he wants to do, the only thing that he can think about is getting as good as somebody else. And, and it just tells me that it doesn't matter who we are, right? Self-identity crisis is just is right there knocking at the door. And I think that if we would be more open with one another in the church, somebody could step in and say to me, are you kidding me? You care about people, you don't even know their names. You know, how about just doing what God called you to do? Isn't there some joy in that? And man, I think we could avoid all that if we could just open up to one another about the problems that we have. Financial problems, emotional problems, relationship stress. We're meant to, to bear all that stuff together. That's the idea of church. Um, I was trying to think, how do, we, how do we put this so clearly, like what this looks like? And then I remembered this. Um, I was on a mission trip like 10 years ago, and, and I was in Amish country, and I got to see them raise a barn. And so the guy starts talking to me about raising a barn. I think I'm going to picture up there. Yeah. And so um, these guys, I don't believe, are Amish because of what they're wearing, right? But, um, but I went to Amish country. And I get to see them raise some of this barn. And they do a whole lot of prep work, like the, the person who's getting the barn. But what happens is, and you, you may already know this, but, you know, when you come of age and you get married, and for the first little time, little while while you're married, you live with your parents and you work on their farm and that kind of thing. But when you get old enough to, to get your own, you know, you're going to get your own barn and you're going to start your own farm, your, your dad can give you some land, you know, and so they'll give some land. But what's really, really hard to come by is, uh, is a house and a barn. And so what they do is they're like, you know, individually, none of us could get a barn. But if we all work together every time somebody needs a barn and we all set aside like a barn contingency fund, then, then every time somebody needs one, there'll be a little bit of money in the fund and, and we can all get together and go help them raise the barn so we can save on all the labor. And so the idea of, of church family is not um, one guy needs a barn, so I go over there and build it for him. The idea is, you know, right now I have a struggle, and so we all band together to help me in the struggle. And then, and then shortly, and then later you have a struggle, and we all band together and we're helping you in the struggle. And then later you have a challenge, and we band together and help you in the challenge. And it's not one person bearing the weight of everybody else. It's all of us chipping in and saying, right now you have a challenge. I'm going to be there for you to help you do that. And that's the idea of, of church family just bearing one another's burdens. Jesus said there was this church, and they were really rich. And uh, I'm sorry, Paul said there was this church. They were really rich. And, and, and there was this other church that was really poor. And Paul went to the rich church, and he said, you should give some money to this poor church. Because who knows, it may not be long that you guys are poor, you know, economic tide shift and your port closes down and, and now you guys are unemployed and, and they have jobs and you never know, it may not be long that you're not so rich and, 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 and you're really poor and you could use some help and then they have money. And he says, and we're going to share these things, the resources that God has given us so that it might be fair. And that's sort of the idea. Not, not, not everybody crumbling for the sake of someone else. It's everybody holding one another up. That's the idea of, of church family. I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is so hard for me to do. If you've ever offered me anything, then you know. Because <laughs> I work hard to say no anytime you want to do something for me. You know, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's just innate in me. I just don't want to take it. But I think if in a moment of honesty you said, hey, look, 
no strings attached. Um, when you have a struggle, let's just, you know, let's be, you know, blood brothers. I don't know, you know, something like that. And when you have a struggle, I will be there for you. I mean, 100%. you got to work late. Your kid needs to be picked up. I got you. You know, as long as I can do it, I'm doing it. If you'll do the same for me. And we're not going to overload each other, right? It's not going to be this unfair thing. Like, we're going to be there for each other completely. And I promise you, that's what we're going to do. And if I knew that that's going to be the case, man, I'd be all in. I just have this fear, you know, this ungodly fear. It's going to be something totally different than that. And, and so, you know, I just, I don't want that. You know, I don't want to burden you. I don't want, you know, I don't want any of those kind of things. But if I knew that it could be like that, I'd be all for that. And turns out, that's what church family is. And so as I, as I looked at the text, I think, man, no wonder everybody wanted to be a part of this church. Like, I'd want to be a part of that too. Church is this family place where we help each other and we serve each other. No buildings required, right? Which is good for us because we don't have a building. But church is a place where we do that. The second thing, um, I'll, I'll tell you this first. I went to my first Saints game. How many of you have not been to a Saints game? All right, just a few of you in here, all right? So everybody else has a memory of being to a, going to a Saints game for the first time. I was, uh, I was 12 when I went to my first Saints game. I got to watch uh, Barry Sanders. I was a huge Barry Sanders fan. Had a huge poster of Barry Sanders. But I was a Saints fan, but also Barry Sanders. So uh, we went, we watched Barry Sanders. He ran all over the Saints. It was really bad for them, but I loved it. And uh, it wasn't but like, when we, I found out we were going to the game, it was the first time I found out that you could actually go to games. Because we didn't, we didn't live near the Dome. You know, we were a couple hours away. I thought you just watched pro sports on TV. <laughs> And so when they're like, we're going to the game, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, how are we going to the game, you know? And, and so we go to the game, and then I'm like, it was incredible. You know, and the Dome was packed because Barry Sanders is a big deal, and the Saints were garbage, but Barry Sanders was good. And, and so everybody was, came to see him, and it was like his last season. And, uh, and, man, I just went nuts. I mean, I lost my voice in the first quarter. I, I just loved it. And I think that's a pretty good picture of church. Uh, we we're, we're devoted fans. I, mean, I loved them forever, and then finally I get together with all the other devoted fans, and it's like this feeling almost of euphoria, of like joy and cheering for this common cause, even though half the place is in blue jerseys cheering for the other guy. But we are. But you know that that's the idea. I think that's the idea of church. But when we come together for church, sometimes we do just the opposite. And so we come together in church and we go, well, I'm not devoted. I'm not all those things. But I want the good stuff. I want to come here and I want to feel great and I want my problem solved. What can I get out of it? We, we don't want the devotion part, but we want all the feel goods. But that's just not how, that's not how life works. That's not how church works. We, we come to it totally backwards. And this is what I think you see in the text. I think you see this reality. The reality is, is that church family like this, church family begins with devotion. It absolutely begins with some devotion. They were devoted to, um, to prayer. They were devoted to gathering together. They were devoted to the Scriptures, right? It tells us all the things that they're devoted to. It begins with devotion, but then it ends in happiness and worship. And I think if you ask anybody, just an average person, you said, what do you want out of life? I think much of them would say, well, you know, I, you know, I want my kids to do well. You know, I want those kind of things. But really, I just want to be happy. 
And he says that's what we get out of Scripture, right? We come with devotion to to church family, and we leave with some happiness and worship. And that's the picture of what they're doing in church. It says the New Testament church. Here's what they're devoted to. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? That's Scripture. They're devoted to koinonia. They're actually devoted to getting together, devoted to the Lord's Supper, or celebrating Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And they're devoted to prayer. Just quick question, real quick. Does devotion characterize your prayer life? Can you say, my prayer life is absolutely about devotion? Or is your prayer life about staying awake? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think it's incredible to talk about a whole church of 100K plus, and we can describe their prayer life as devoted. So they came with this devoted mentality of following Jesus. And then what happened? They, they had glad and sincere hearts. And they begin to overcome their struggles with these glad and sincere hearts as they come devoted. They're full of joy. They enjoy one another. They actually like one another, right? It's a big family, and they're all different, and they like one another, and they're praising God. And it's so incredibly contagious that everybody else wants to come be a part. Have you ever had, think about your family of origin. Do you think if anybody, if you could just be behind a one-sided glass and somebody could stand on the other side, would they look at your family and be like, that's what I want to be a part of? And it says people were looking into the church, church family, and they were like, I want to be a part of that. I think today's church would be incredibly unrecognizable to the early church. If we told them we're a group of people, many of us just show up every now and then, but some of us are there every week, um, you know, or, or more often than not, but there's some people there 50% of the time, 40% of the time, some people just come once a month, you know. Um, but, you know, that, that's, you know, but that's, I mean, you know, we're, we're family here. We don't know each other very much outside of Sunday morning. Um, and look, I'm stepping on my own toes like crazy here. We don't know each other that much outside of Sunday morning. But I tell you what we did do, and this is what we're not doing, but I tell you what we do do is sometimes we spend a million dollars on land in a building and we sit in a room so that we can gather with people that we barely know. I think the early church would be like, what are you talking about? Like, that is not a church at all. That sounds more like the Roman Colosseum where they murder Christians, not necessarily like church gathering. And I think it's pretty incredible. We look at the richness of, of what, the way that they did church and the results that they got, and maybe it's because it looks so different. I think that authentic, true-to-Jesus intentions church is church family. Close fellowship, koinonia, people that are devoted to Jesus, and and out of that flows this impenetrable joy, and people that love one another, and a family that takes care of one another. I think that's the idea of church that you see right there. I'd love for us all to be a part of that family. And I'd love for a few other people that that didn't make it today to, to say, that's the kind of family I want to be a part of. Here, this is what we do. This is how we say you join that family. And we try to do it as clear and simply and close to New Testament as possible. We say, here's all you've got to do to join the family, because this is what they did in the New Testament. We say, here's what you do. You ask Jesus for forgiveness from sin. It's called repenting. When they talk about it in the Bible, they say repent. You ask Jesus for forgiveness, and then you tell him that you trust him, and you want him to be your Savior. The Bible says, repent and believe or confess with your mouth. And that's all that it's saying, right? It says, ask Jesus for forgiveness, trust him, ask him to be your Savior. 
And it says when you do that, you become a follower of God. And then what, what they did in the New Testament is, once you did that, or one, maybe you did it years ago and you just professed it today because um, you never really came out and professed that, then they baptized you. And then you were good. You joined the church. And absolutely, and then you became a part of the church family. And you began to grow in discipleship and you began to grow to be a part of the family. And so that's how we want to do it here, as true as we can. And I know that as more of us commit to that, then we become more and more like this church family that people can't wait to be a part of. Let me pray.